Welcome to Kid Tech, the podcast series about the people behind the kids' digital media sector. I'm your host, Dylan Collins. You might know me from my day job as CEO of Super Awesome. Today, I'm with Clark Stacy, CEO of Wildworks, and a kids' game developer best known for the Animal Jam series and many more besides. Clark, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, I'm delighted to be here. Um, so let's let's talk about the history of Wildworks, because um, you guys didn't start in the kids space originally, right? Well, kind of. Um, you know, when we when we started the company, I came off of running a, a company called Beyond Games with one of the co-founders uh, that he had started, and we were doing blow stuff up games. We were doing console games, mostly vehicle combat. Um, M-rated stuff, and when we came out of that, we looked at the kids space and thought, what if we took the technology, the production values that we developed here, doing blow stuff up games, into kids, because kids are just getting crap games, right? Right. Then the kids business was all, whatever latest animated movie was coming out, it was, you know, a six-month five skew development project for some poor schlubs to put out, you know, a, a, a really crappy ET level game and, you know, get it on the shelves at Walmart in time for Christmas. Um, we thought, wow, we'd step into that and, you know, we've got a great engine, we've got uh, uh, great artists, we could be the 800 pound gorilla of these these games. Uh, when, when was this? This was 2003. This is <laughs> 2003, and what we started what we started with, though, do you know, have you ever heard of Stanley Mouse? He's a, you might know him. He was an artist, really famous in the 60s. He did, like, the Skull and Roses for uh, the Grateful Dead. Oh, and right. he had these series of characters, these monster hot rodder characters, the Rat Fink and, yeah. and these guys. Um, so he's... He's still around. He's still crazier than a three-eyed cat. He lives in an apple orchard north of San Francisco, and he's still doing art. Hmm. And we met him through just some weird, circuitous circumstances and uh, said, why don't we do a game based on these uh, these monster hot rodder characters, and we'll call it Scumbag Racing, and <laughs> it'll be kind of this... Uh, it doesn't sound family oriented, but it'll be a you know a little more kid oriented kind of Mario Kart, but with with more of an edge to it. Right. And that was our first project as we uh, we started working on that. Couldn't find a publisher for it. Um, Weird. Yeah. Can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the at the time we were talking to other publishers, we started working with uh, Namco Bandai. Uh, had a friend that was working there. Did. Um, uh, Pac-Man World Rally with them, did Snoopy vs. the Red Baron, um, and so we were kind of going the kid direction then, and then we uh, we, st- we stepped off of that for a moment to work on Afro Samurai, which, uh, if you remember that remember coming Afro up, Samurai. yeah. Uh, Namco was going through the, the Bandai merger at the time. Um, that deal wound up going south. They wound up completing the game with uh, with a Japanese developer, with uh, with a different developer. But um, but yeah, we worked on that for for a bit. Um, then worked on uh, okay. Here's the, the most the most embarrassing part of the uh, the whole odyssey of Wildworks is uh, at one point we were deep at work on. You remember when Activision was cranking out Guitar Hero games every six months? Uh, they also had Mattel licenses, and they came to us with uh, a drawing of a pink guitar and said, 
Barbie Guitar Hero. <laughs> no way. And, I mean, I, I, I get the description, right? And, and we said, okay. And we, we started working on Barbie Guitar Star, and we were designing the guitar at the same time that we were designing the game. But I will tell you, I, I look back at the concept art for that now, and it's still cooler than anything that Mattel has done with Barbie right. since before or since. It's... Oh, um, it, it was it was really cool. That's Never amazing. Cool. So why didn't that see the light of day? Uh, around that time, um, uh, the bottom fell out of Guitar Hero games. Right. I think uh, you know, Rockstar was out, and then it became a race to the bottom for um, you know signing bad '80s hair bands to to <laughs> do your content. And um, so, how did you go from nearly doing Barbie Guitar Star? <laughs> Which I, I want to return to that story for a whole separate podcast at some point. Um, to Animal Jam. So about 2007, 2008, um, the bottom fell out of the market that we were in. Yeah, this is around the time that uh, THQ went away, Midway went away, Activision Value, uh, all these companies that were doing kid product that was it was all about get something in the box on the shelves before Christmas in, in Walmart. Um, you know, first of all, the iPhone came out and selling box software at Walmart wasn't a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. It's digital distribution kind of sped up from there. Uh, but then all of these companies went under because, um, you know, there was an economic downturn in the States and I think there were ripples around the world. Uh, but the market just wasn't there for those types of products anymore. All those companies went away and those were all of our potential partners. Mm-hmm. So we went back to our investors then, this would have been 2008. And said we're going to have to pivot. You know this um, this work for hire model that we're doing. Uh, we're building up some war chest, but we're not going to escape this wheel of karma. It's it's shrinking too fast for us. Um, we're going to need to pivot, and we want to ba- you you to back us in uh, in our own IP. And here's what it is. Um, uh, and they did. That's that was kind of the genesis of we we went out first. Um, during this period and when we were working on Snoopy with Namco um, we had a great relationship with the Schultz family right. and uh, the people who were running the, the, the property and they really wanted to keep working with us mm-hmm. didn't really want to keep working with Namco uh, so we wound up licensing Snoopy and Peanuts directly from them and doing a game called Snoopy Flying Ace for the Xbox that is still the best flight combat game of that Xbox generation. I think it's still I think you can still get it and play it. Uh, it was on Xbox 360 through Xbox Live. Um, Microsoft made it a, a first party title and um, and that was that was a lot of fun. So we we started developing two original IPs from there. Right. One was a, another flight combat game that uh, was called Sky Legends. And uh, there was Animal Jam, and was flight the flight combat game was family and kids or not? It sounds yeah. Oh, it was yeah, yeah. It was a browser based flight combat MMO Hmm. type thing. So think like Crossfire, but with really cool kind of steampunk looking planes. Uh, Ran in a in a browser with uh, the Unity plugins that were. Kind of a new thing at the time, um, yeah. I mean, you you can find the uh, the trailers and things for it on, on mm-hmm. YouTube still. It's 
uh, it's still pretty cool if anybody out there you know, wants to do a, an awesome flight combat game uh, <laughs> we're still sitting on a, on a good IP for it um, that's amazing and how did the partnership with National Geographic come about and it, it seems already I can see you have a track record of sort of unusual inspirations and alliances <laughs> that you've built over over your career with Wildbrush. Yeah, it's it's true. So we convinced our investors that uh, making this pivot was the right thing to do, mm. that uh, investing in our own IP was the right thing to do. Um, but they looked at the landscape and you know, we're their only entertainment company and this is all new to them. And uh, we, they looked at the landscape and said, well, your major competitors... Club Penguin, mm-hmm. Disney had already bought them by that time. Uh, there were a couple of things that um, uh, Discovery was doing, um, or not, yeah, not Discovery, uh, Viacom was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're going up against uh, competitors that have their own television networks. That must have been a reasonably challenging conversation to have. I mean, Club Penguin at that time was still big, right? Yeah. Oh, man, I keep hitting your microphone. Um yeah, Club Penguin, this was a year or two after Disney bought them. Right. Uh, Lane and Lance were running Disney Interactive um, uh, and you know, taking it lots of different directions. And it looks like, looked at the time like it was going to keep growing. Yeah. <clears throat> we looked at it and said, you know, this has got a great community to it, but gameplay-wise, visual-wise, we think we can... Uh, you know, we think that there's more that we can do with this. And, um, but uh, the point that our investors made is you're going up against these guys with a lot of resources mm. and um, you know, the ability to advertise through their own channels. Maybe you should align yourself with a, uh, a, a, another kid's IP that has some of the same vibe you're trying to create uh, but can bring you some instant scale and audience and uh, and credibility, I guess. Mm. Um, so we talked to uh, we talked to a few people. We got fairly down, far down the path with uh, with Animal Planet, um, but hit it off with National Geographic. That seemed like mm. the kind of union that we were looking for because we knew from the start that we wanted to do something that had uh, uh, conservation message woven into it and some educational DNA to it that was. Um, that wasn't uh, superfluous you know, right. at, the, at the time. Club Penguin was saying it was educational, mm-hmm. and then you you went and you clicked on the education thing, and it was like it teaches kids how to use a mouse, and so not yeah, you know, which is not uh, entirely illegitimate, but you know, we wanted education to be a you know, a little deeper than that, um, and so. You know that was that was the partnership that we struck. We paid too much for it. Mm. Um, they're they're a great company, uh, and, and I think that we our hope was that this would be a much deeper media sharing partnership. That uh, you know, would National Geographic is known for having this vast library of uh, animal photography and video and and all of this gorgeous stuff. Which they do, but they also, um, the way that the licenses are on most of it, they don't own it outright. Mm. And the stuff that they do have um, with open licenses to, they, they don't have license to distribute it online or right. exhibit it online. <laughs> so when it came to creating the educational materials for Animal Jam, video and photo and that, uh, we wound up doing a lot of it ourselves or licensing it mm. ourselves or... Um, 
such as when we. So did they have to approve everything that, that you were? Was it almost like reverse approval type yeah. or reverse licensing token? And initially, so it was a straightforward licensing deal where they got a very generous MG from us, and there was some media sharing kind of written into it. Mm. Um, but there were also you know, some covenants in there that they wanted to make sure that anything animal-related that we were presenting in the game was factual and could be backed up scientifically. Hmm. And they assigned us a zoologist. Really? Yes. We, got, we were assigned a zoologist. And uh, so any text descriptions, any video materials or things, uh, we would send to this zoologist and we would get something back commented. And eventually our writer uh, said, you know, I, I've been searching like some of the comments that we're getting back, and they're straight out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, we could do this. <laughs> and Nat Geo uh, eventually said, "Okay, we'd, after a year or two, we we trust you guys. They're not going to be making up new animals or um, you know <laughs> uh, changing uh, the history of Darwin or anything." Um, so you know, uh, while they did. Uh, Overseas stuff that was coming out. It wasn't like a, hey, we've got a deploy coming up and we need you to fact check this. So you launched, um, and did it blow up immediately? Was it more kind of a gradual success? Like, what were the first few months like when when Animal Jam launched? You know, at the time, we... Things that we were looking at uh, as competitors, things like Moshi Monsters or Club Penguin, they both had these amazing hockey stick... Uh, growth rates in their first year or two. They just they just hit at the right time. Um, we didn't. The National Geographic <clears throat> Association brought uh, a lot of credibility with parents, I think, and probably brought us our first quarter million registrations or so. Right. They came directly over from the National Geographic Kids website. Um, but, uh, you know, after a year or two, I think... Um, you know, we were sending them as much traffic as they were sending us. Right. And, uh, they were just they were growing their kids' business in a different direction. So on the digital side, this was uh, this was doing quite well, um, and I think it was a, a good partnership for them that way. But no, our our growth was uh, you know much more gradual. There was no hockey stick, but the beauty of that is that there's also no drop off mm. at the end. Um, or at least, yeah, certainly not in the same way that happened uh, with those guys. And, and, and talk a little bit about the stats. I mean, so you you officially launched in was it twenty ten? Yeah, twenty ten. Yeah. So twenty eighteen, and you're also on, on mobile now with Playwild. Mm. I mean, um, bedazzle me with stats. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's something to. Be, I think that there's there's what. I like to think of as PR stats and real stats, right? PR stats are things like registration. How many registrations do you have? Well, that number only ever goes up, sure, right? And it doesn't say anything about how many people are sticking around, what engagement's like. So registrations, okay, we've got uh, about 110 million now. Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, yeah, uh, but it's totally meaningless. We should at some point we should add sound effects. There should be. <laughs> you don't have sound effects. I, I know. Well, we we can do it in post production. Okay, um, uh, but that's that's not really meaningful. I think what's um, what's more meaningful is engagement. How much time mm-hmm. are kids actually spending in it? How do they use it? Uh, so in terms of monthly active users, uh, it's it's seasonal with the school year, but it peaks around five million. Uh, in daily active users, it's uh, again 
seasonal with the school year, but four to five hundred thousand. Um, but the time that they're spending in there is uh, when school's out, upwards of seventy minutes a day on average. Mm-hmm. When school's in, it goes down to fifty or so. But you know, it's not it's not something like doodle jump you play it on the bus for a, a few minutes it, right. it's kids use this as a social network um, they're in there with friends playing games together talking to each other and and a lot of it is just social interaction yeah. and uh, so at this point today I mean it's fair to describe Animal Jam as, as fundamentally sort of two two versions two platforms desktop and, and mobile do you think of it that way? we Yes and no. Because so actually, actually, let me ask sort of a, a, a more contextual question. When did you launch mobile? Uh, when did you launch PlayWorld? Yeah, we launched that, um, call it uh, end of Q3, 15. Um, and that was, we made, we made a choice at the time that was seemed kind of dicey at the time. I think it's proven to be the right one, which is rather than take Animal Jam on the web and mm. put some kind of wrapper on it to get it to run on mobile devices such that we would have a 360-degree product that, you know, log into the same thing wherever you are. Um, the, the trade-off there is that you get a web game that's been shoehorned onto your mobile device mm. and not something that's taking advantage of the hardware and what the mobile device can do. So we created... Um, kind of an alternate universe that instead of being flash-based is unity-based and is fully 3D. That means that um, there's a lot fewer memory constraints on us. There's a lot more that we can do with animation, with mm. uh, you know, variety in the, in the mm. game. Um, but yeah, it, it created another branch of Animal Jam. And we try to keep it we try to keep it whole through things like the business model underlying it. So the subscription model is unified. If you have a subscription on web, it gives you the same, it confers the benefits on mobile and, and vice versa. Um, you know, we do, we do some intersections in the, in the property where, <clears throat> you know, contests will start in one, continue in another, that, mm. that kind of thing. And from a behavior perspective, I mean, are, <clears throat> are presumably, the community is playing, I mean, kids are playing one version or the other? That's that's what happened. We, mm. we expected there to be more crossover, actually, than there's been. Mm. Um, the, the kids who started playing on web still play on web. Mm. And UA is much cheaper on web, so right. it's easier to pick up new users on, on web. Um, and the kids that are playing on mobile don't, don't cross over that much. And I mean, one of the things that that's always struck me about Animal Jam on mobile is that you know if you go back to to sort of that twenty ten kind of peak twenty eleven twenty twelve that sort of peak kids virtual world desktop mm. virtual world yeah how so few of them were able to make that mobile transition I mean Michael Acton Smith talks a lot about this right mm-hmm. with with Mind Candy and the things that went wrong. Mm. And, and, and that they just sort of didn't get mobile right and couldn't get mobile right. You know, it feels like Wild Wars were one of the very, very few who did. What, what do you think you did right or didn't do wrong? <laughs> uh, 
I think I think what we did right is we we made that decision that we're not going to try and take a web game and put it on mobile. Right. Um, we're going to take what kids like about the IP and about the community, and we're going to put that into a game that's designed for mobile from from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that turned out to be the right decision. It's probably a big reason why we were able to navigate that because uh, when we came out on mobile we had something that looked like a console game and the other virtual worlds had something that looked like a flash game on, right. our, on your iPad. Right. Um, so uh, you know, competitively we just, we just looked a lot better from the start. And I saw that you recently um, talked about hitting about $150 million in lifetime revenue. Right. Um, do you categorize that as a real stat or a vanity stat? No, that's a, a, you can't fake money. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there's some debate about that, I believe. <laughs> but what I was going to ask was, how does that look on, on mobile? Has your monetization been similar, the performance been similar on mobile? It's, it's taken a long time. We've actually just crossed the threshold really within the last couple of months where revenue between the two products is kind of neck and neck. Um, and uh, MAU, DAU starting to look very similar between the two as well. Now part of that is because you know, web has declined over, over time as, as uh, mobile has grown. Um, but there's still a substantial web community there, and mm. I think there's still. Um, is that is that kids getting older, or is that new kids coming in on, on older hardware? What's the heavy? Yeah, it's it's both. I mean, there's there's still the web game still adds a million registrations a month, huh. uh, minimum. So, and, and this is this mostly U.S. or, or geographically? Where are you? The U.S. is about sixty percent. Uh, UK is big, but our number two country is Brazil in terms of users, new users, and engagement. Um, Brazil, if, if you were to uh, amalgamate Latin America, um, they would be number three, um, and they're certainly the the fastest growing ones. But in terms of revenue, it's you know it's North America, UK, right. Australia, and I mean that must make Playwild um, or Animal Jam on mobile one of the top-grossing kids' games, kids and family games? Is that how you think about it? I mean, I suppose, yeah. I mean, in terms of pure play, you know, deliberately focused at, at, at that audience. I Deliberately focused at that audience, sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think that there's, yeah, there, there's a lot of diciness and even sophistry in the kids' space in mobile where you have companies that own a lot of kids' IP, uh, are putting out games in the regular games category that have Facebook links and everything else, um, and they're pretending that they're general audience games when really you and I know that they're directed right. at kids, right? right? But they're putting them out as general audience so they don't they can skirt COPPA and uh, GDPRK, and, um, which you know I think that there's a, a regulatory ban hammer coming. Mm. Um, but you know, I've also been saying that for two years, and it hasn't come yet. Sure, but I mean, we've certainly been seeing more and more of it. Yeah, you know, I would yeah. say certainly over the last twelve months. Um, and I think with with the age limit or the age definition of kids increasing in Europe with GDPRK, I think I think yeah. we might see see a lot more later this year. Yeah. Um, what does your product development process look like, and and is it now fundamentally split into two totally separate teams, or is your is your design sort of borrowing and learning from from each school? They they do borrow and, and learn, um, though. You know the the web game now we're we're going on nine years of 
creating new content for this and we're able to we're able to work more with external studios to that pipeline is so well established that you know the the core creative work can happen with our team and then you you imagine a new animal uh, animal avatar going into animal jam and there are literally thousands of clothing items accessories and things Every clothing item, every accessory has to fit every animal right. for every frame of animation. Um, that means whenever a new clothing item, whenever a new animal comes out, re-render all of that stuff and um, you know just the number of animation frames that are created, stored, access, and that it's you know it's millions and millions. So um, you know the being able to put outside that render farm type work and that kind of animation work. It's a much more smooth uh, uh, pipeline than it is for for some of the others. And I suppose on that on that note, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the, the, your your kid tech stack behind the scenes? I mean, you've got mm-hmm. a lot of technology that's been built in there. I mean, yeah, specifically yeah. around sort of content moderation, but in a bunch of other areas as well. Yeah, when you think about if you're going to do a game like this, then what are you going to use as a socket server that is going to um, that's that's going to protect privacy the way that you need it to the way that it's going to insulate uh, you know personal information and billing information and everything the way it needs to because there are some things that you can go out and license but um, they're not COPPA compliant they're right. going to have your user data and it, it doesn't work um, you know initially we started out with a licensed tech stack and uh, we wound up just piece by piece backfilling it mm-hmm. all until we replaced it all um, it didn't scale as fast as we needed it to we needed to be able to um, you know add and subtract servers in the cloud dynamically so over time we evolved something that is the socket server at the at the base and everything that's involved infrastructurally in in scaling that for uh, for user growth. Um, but also uh, billing, uh, COPPA compliance, parental communication, um, yeah, uh, moderation, chat, admin, the ability to uh, review, discipline, uh, moderate content. We have, you know, there's, oh, I can't remember the last count, there's 10 to 20,000 pieces of kids' artwork that we get every day through the Masterpiece system there. And those all have to be seen by a human being, not once, but twice, because we put them through a a second check. So creating the tools to moderate things like that efficiently. yeah, that's that's all part of that tech stack. I mean, it's it's really a sort of very impressive stack that you've built. But I'm also sort of very conscious that most game developers in the kids space won't have access to any of this. I mean, has this been? Do you feel this has been holding back the kids games sector, or people have been? You know, I I think <clears throat> I, this is a personal hobby horse for both of us. So I, I I know where you're leading with this. I I think that social in general is uh, is holding back the kids mm-hmm. space. Um, it is too expensive. It is too high touch. It is too risky to put social features into a game for kids for most developers out there. Mm-hmm. The ones that have the size and scale to invest in it won't because they perceive too much risk in getting something wrong. They see big fines coming down from uh, uh, regulatory bodies. Um, 
and they're you know they're afraid of this backwashing on the rest of their their IP in their catalog. Um, so they're not doing it. The smaller independent companies don't have the means to invest in this, and you know that's. Uh, that's part of the impetus for us looking at this landscape and saying, well, maybe we need to take this tech stack and make it available to other developers. And why why hasn't Apple or Google or even Facebook fixed this or released tools for the kids space? I mean, it's you know they're not shy of, of resources mm-hmm. and engineers, and, and I believe they understand that children exist now. I, I think that they do, <laughs> but I think that they're terrified of them. Yeah, I I remember talking to. I don't think he's there anymore, so I can probably say this. Uh, talking to an exec uh, from a from Nexon uh, at GDC a few years ago, and this was when MapleStory was just huge, mm-hmm. huge worldwide, and kid-oriented MMO, really well done, really really deep story content. And I asked him, why haven't you brought that to the states? They did bring it to the states, but it really didn't do anything. They didn't put any push behind it. They just kind of translated it and put it out there. Um, you know, that seems like that would be a huge business for you. Why haven't you brought it here? It's because we're terrified of COPPA. Hmm. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We, you know, you read it, we still don't understand what the rules are and it's just too much risk. And for big companies like that, I think for Apple, for Facebook, anytime uh, you know, kids and Facebook are using the same sentence. It's a negative, and it drives down their stock price. Um, I think that they, you know, any attempts that they've made, you don't have to get much wrong for it to be mm. a bad PR day and to to cost you a, a lot of money. But even what about the app stores? I mean, I'm always amazed that there isn't more work being done on you know, the, the, the family category and the kids category, and even the notion of sort of a kids category, yeah. which is guaranteed to turn kids off. Right. Yeah, in, in yeah. many, many cases. I mean, it seems like so much more could be done there. Well, they're getting all the revenue without any of the liability by pretending the kids aren't using it. Mm. You know? So they, you, know, you, you put your, um, your animated kids movie-based game into the core uh, games category. You can put all the social features and viral spread and rapacious monetization in it that you want. And as long as you pretend that it's not for kids, then Apple makes a lot of money, you make a lot of money, why upset the Apple cart there? Um, I really like the phrase rapacious monetization. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very good description. And, and sort of speaking of, of adult platforms and adult environments, um, you know, YouTube is, is obviously central to all of this. Mm. And you recently released a title with Pocket Watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the with the team over there for Ryan, um, how did that come about, and and, and how's it been going? Because Ryan's yeah. obviously built up his entire community on YouTube, and is, yeah. is, 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 yeah. is is now expanding. So, yeah, for for anybody who doesn't know, Ryan is a six seven year old kid with a YouTube channel called Ryan Toys Review uh, that I think was the highest earning YouTube channel last year. He made twenty two million dollars. Um, and that's, you know, Ryan getting really excited about opening up toys and, and playing with them. Um, so uh, he started working, his family started working with a company called Pocket Watch that is also working with some other young YouTube influencers. And 
starting to teach or treat them more like a stable of brands than just individual mm-hmm. uh, YouTubers, so that they can, um, uh, you know, they can license the IP that they're creating. They can turn it into more than just a YouTube channel. So uh, we met the Pocket Watch guys around the time that they were uh, planning uh, a toy release for for Ryan Toys Review. Um, that was based on uh, these, you know, one of the cores of it was uh, these little blind box collectibles, mm. Ryan in different outfits, cowboy, fireman, astronaut kind of thing, uh, 50 different variations of this. And you don't know what you're going to get when you open it, but um, you, you're going to be able to collect all these. <clears throat> and we had just released a game that kind of came out of our, uh, our prototype lab called Dash Tag. Which was, you know, we prototype games, and if uh, if we come up with a core mechanic that we think is fun and unique, uh, we'll take it all the way to completion, and we'll see what statistically it does, and if it, you know, uh, the monetization stats justify it, then we'll start putting more wood behind it. But we had just recently released uh, Dash Tag, which was kind of a twist on the Endless Runner, where you're both chasing somebody else and being chased, uh, and we. And it was with the Animal Jam pets, um, where you would unlock pets. You're you're all escaping from this daycare, and if you could tag the pet in front of you, you could throw them behind you, and the babysitter would catch them instead of you, and you can keep going. But then the next time you play, you can play as them. Um, and they looked at that and said, well, "This is this is really cool. This seems like it would fit with what we're doing with." And, and, Ryan. and out of curiosity, what was the crossover like in terms of the Animal Jam community? That was one of the reasons that we released it using uh, the artwork that we did, where it was very similar to the Animal Jam world. We didn't call it an Animal Jam game, but um, we wanted to see how how could we take our existing audience, to what degree could we promote a completely new game that's totally different genre, totally outside of them. you know how much strength that we have in, in doing that, and it turned out to be um, pretty significant. Mm-hmm. You know, we were able to get a lot of day one, week one audience into into Dash Tag, and when Pocket Watch approached us with this idea, we kind of looked at it as a similar experiment. You know, Ryan's got 17 million YouTube subscribers, uh, over a billion views on his videos. Um, you know, what would happen if you? took a game that was Ryan themed like this and you know the core of the UA was just him playing it in these videos and getting his audience excited about mm-hmm. it. I suppose it solves the, the challenge of the social problem, the sharing problem in kids as well, right? That, that was sort the question I, you know I I didn't know if it would or not, but I thought it was a worthwhile experiment to mm-hmm. perform and one that wasn't going to uh, to cost us a lot in terms of development resources since we already had the, the game more or less there. Right. Um, and so far, the, the results have been have been interesting. It's um, been about a million downloads. It's what well, we're four weeks into it. Um, so for something that you're not spending UA dollars on mm-hmm. that's in the kids space, a million downloads is, is pretty good. Um, so we'll you know we'll see how it does over time over a few updates and uh, Ryan and his family are doing more videos around it. Um, you know we'll be and and do you think that's the the direction of travel for a lot of those family content creators, family YouTubers doing doing more off YouTube? I mean, is, did you <clears throat> see more conversations like that happening? I think that that's what. Uh, 
I th- that's the debate that's happening right now. And, and it's a question of does your brand work outside of YouTube? Does it work outside of whatever your shtick is that you're, you're doing in YouTube? Can you create something that, uh, um, that has a compelling cast of characters, that has a, uh, some narrative arcs to it, and that justifies something like uh, a linear animation series and toys? And Is there a bigger story there? Mm. Or are you just going playing pranks on people and filming it in the street? Right. <clears throat> if there's a bigger story there, then, yeah, it would work for the same reason that it would work in, in any other entertainment. It's because you've got a story to tell. And I suppose on, on, on the same, on a similar theme, when you think about Wildworks, what does the future look like? Is it, is it more within the Animal Jam universe? Is it different IPs? Is mm-hmm. it going beyond games? How do, you, how do you think about the next five years? Uh, you know, I, we have the advantage now of millions of kids playing and having played our game that are telling us what they want. And, right. and in many cases, what we're hearing from them is, um, well, I've been playing Animal Jam for five years or so. I kind of feel weird. You know, I'm a junior, senior in high school. I'm still playing Animal Jam. You guys should do something that's like this, but, you know, with without all of the, the restrictions that Animal Jam has to have, something for a little bit older kids that still like this mechanic and this type of community. Um, and so we've we've heard that. And the next thing that we're going to be announcing is kind of the answer to the question of where do kids go after Animal Jam. Hmm. Um, but we're also thinking in terms of uh, where are kids before Animal Jam. And um, you know, Animal Jam's core audience is 8 to 12, 8 to 13. Um, you know, there's, uh, are there, is there a version of the Animal Jam game mechanics with maybe a different, uh, IP attached to it that is going to appeal a little bit younger and that could be a bridge into Animal Jam? So for, and, and do you, from a monetization perspective, do you think of different revenue models with those different age brackets? I think when you get a little older, when you get, uh, you know, 14 and up, then, then I become a little more tolerant morally, I guess, of, of an in-app purchase model as long as some basic rules are followed. And I've talked about what our rules are around the, that monetization before, but it's essentially, um, I don't care how old they are, if a kid buys something in a game, they own it. It's a toy. Mm. They they have it now. If you If it's something that you can only use once and then it goes away, that's a scam. Mm. Uh, if it's something that you know it's it's good for ten minutes, that's you know that's that's lame. Um, I think that uh, you know, it's maybe not as rigid as kids get a little bit older, but it's why I like subscription so much right. in in the Animal Jam world. Is it's um, the value proposition is straightforward for parents, straightforward for kids. Um, they know what they're getting. The currency that they have in the game, they're learning to save, budget, uh, and you know, extend forward. Um, and I like that for for younger kids as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that it becomes more of a hybrid model as you get older than Animal Jam. Do you think the kids' content space and the kids' game space is getting easier or harder? Because you know, when you when you look around, you. you <clears throat> See, it's sort of you know a, a, a small number of, of small games companies that are mm-hmm. sustainable, and a small number of big ones, and very very little in between. Like it's, it's yeah. an unusual distribution compared to the mainstream yeah. game development space. 
easier or harder? Well, I don't, I don't know. If you're a if you're a match three game company, then you're probably saying the same thing. You're probably saying uh, there's there's a couple of gigantic games mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of stuff on Congregate and um, then there's you know all the all the cliff jumpers that didn't make it. Um, but it is different in the kids space, and I can't say that um, I'm sad that we don't have more competition. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's a huge opportunity for companies that can apply uh, the production values of mainstream games, of AAA games, that um, there's, a, there's a huge amount of open water here still. And I would rather see uh, you know, a bigger pie that everybody's uh, jumping into than just owning the whole pie. Do you feel there are specific things that need to change to make it, to, to make the ecosystem better and more conducive well you think about the problems that a kid uh, kids digital media developer has they've got problems with discovery and user acquisition uh, they've got um, problems with adding social that's almost impossible and if you look at the top 200 games on the app store they're all social uh, to one degree or another mm-hmm. they at least have you know a Facebook connection for leaderboards and seeing your friends right. on or something um, but yeah, the kids are are more or less excluded from that. So I think you solve that problem. Um, you solve some of the technology problems around being able to do real time multiplayer stuff. Uh, you know things like a kid safe socket server and some of the the things that keep smaller developers. Then I, I think you're going to see some really innovative mm. stuff come out when developers don't have to focus as much on um, the the user acquisition discovery part and on uh, those kind of fundamental technology and networking things. And when you see what's going on in the general sort of game distribution landscape at the moment with, with Epic coming out to sort of directly challenge Valve, do you feel any of those companies are thinking about specifically about the under-13 market? I would be very surprised if they were. I, you know, I know a lot of kids under 13 that play Fortnite. A couple of them live in my house. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, and I'm sure that they're well aware that they've got a large kid constituency there. But again, it's that that trade-off of why would you go and explicitly acknowledge that with all of the restrictions that come with that, mm-hmm. when you get all the benefit by just pretending everybody's 13 and up and isn't lying about their age when they create an account. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that they would, and I think that there is a huge opportunity for something like that that has some curation to it that uh, uh, that you know, parents can you know, buy a uh, a card for at the grocery store and give it to a kid for their birthday, and they can spend it however they want in an ecosystem that. You know, the games have a certain quality level, and they have some monetization rules around them, and that uh, they've solved some of these um, social problems. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about um, the challenges for, for parents and screen time and, and sort of their own education um, about this space? It, it continues to seem to be at least getting harder, not easier. Yeah, but, you know, I've, I've heard... I've heard that conversation changing a little bit with uh, with more science coming out and more articulate scientists coming out and talking about it um, to the issue being quality, not quantity. 
Right. And that the what parents need to be paying attention to is not how much screen time kids have, but how they're spending it. And in a lot of circles, parents don't want to hear that. They want to hand the iPad to the child and have them occupied while they get the dishes done. And they don't want to have to pay attention to what they're looking at. They want it done for them. But there is no substitute for engaged parenting when it uh, when it comes to solving for the screen time issue. Um, you know, I, I heard it. Uh, it was at the FOSI conference um, uh, a month or two ago, and one of the speakers there put it this way: that like any time that a child is spending in your game or app is time that they could be spending doing something else. Uh, playing outside, reading a book, playing with friends, is what you're providing as good or better than what they could be spending their time on. Um, There is no ecosystem where parents can just hand off a device and know that whomever is providing the interactivity there has answered that question affirmatively for for their kid. Um, That's why there's an opportunity for that kind of ecosystem. But I am encouraged that at least the screen time debate is starting to shift more to quality over quantity. Um, And final question, Clark. Um, Do you believe that Barbie Guitar Star will ever, ever see the light of day? Some future incarnation? This is a conversation. Should should, should we get um, Enon from Mattel (laughs) to to, to see if we bring him on the next show? Yeah, somewhere out there, I hope there's you know there's some developer in Malaysia who is like thinking, oh, that's genius. We'll go and we'll go and license this and buy. I'm sure you know Mattel would be happy to license it. Um, you probably I don't know if there's still patents on uh, on the whole Guitar Hero thing, but I don't know. Dylan, maybe you and I should do it. <laughs> um, we'll do GI Joe guitar. It will do Barbie guitars for. Oh, now you're giving me ideas. <laughs> Um, well, Clark Stacy, CEO of Wildworks, thank you very much for joining us today on Kitech. Hey, thank you. It's great to talk to you.